Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for tuning into episode 18 of Crime and Beauty. I'm so sorry that I was not able to put out this episode a week ago. I was actually recovering from um, COVID-19, unfortunately, which was unexpected. And I'm so grateful that I am nearly 100% recovered, but it was um, definitely a scary experience. as I'm sure many of you that have had it or know somebody that has had it. Um, has would agree with because every day was like a different symptom um, and you just really don't know what to expect because it really manifests itself so differently with every person. Um, I myself was, again, very fortunate not to have any sort of breathing issues or um, life, life-threatening life symptoms, but um, it was difficult. My energy was extremely low, so I just figured um, wait until I'm at my best and can provide a great case for today. So that is what has been going on with me and I hope you are all doing well and are safe and as healthy as possible. I think it's interesting how 2020 everyone was like okay well we're done with this now let's go let's have a nice normal more stable year and of course so much has happened. Um, The pandemic is still raging on and the storming of the Capitol last week was absolutely bananas. I mean, I've never seen or witnessed anything like that in my entire life. So if anything, my goal is to provide an outlet for entertainment and, um, you know, a little bit of distraction. I think we all need it. So without further ado, let's cover this case. Reina Angelica Marroquin was a Salvadoran woman who was murdered in the United States in 1969. Her murder was not discovered until 1999, 30 years later, when her body was found in the Jericho, New York, former home of Howard B. Elkins, a businessman who was identified as the prime suspect. Elkins committed suicide before he could be charged or thoroughly questioned. Now, before I jump into this story, I wanted to list a few of the sources that I use, and I use quite quite a few, um, especially articles, which would include an article by Robert Dominguez for the New York Daily News, an article in the New York Times by John T. McQuiston, multiple articles by Oscar Corral in Newsday, an article in CBS News, one by Kevin Krauss for the Sun Sentinel, I also watched the Forensic Files episode from Season 5, which was Episode 4, called A Voice from Beyond, Wikipedia, and I may not be thinking of everything, but I think that covers sort of the main ones, but there's a lot of tidbits that I drew from other internet research as well. So let's get started. On September 2nd, 1999, on a quiet upscale tree-lined street in Jericho, New York, Ronald Cohn was moving out of his mid-century modern split-level home he had just sold after having lived there for nine years. He had noticed, much to his chagrin, 
that not all of his trash had been picked up and was sitting curbside, including an extremely heavy metal drum with faded chemical labels that had been sitting in the crawl space. The family moving in insisted it was his responsibility to remove the barrel, which he begrudgingly agreed to, even though it had been in the house when he had moved in. Upon approaching the barrel, he noticed it had a note affixed to it. It said that it was too heavy to move, and he would need to arrange a special pickup through the Department of Sanitation, due to its heavy weight, which was I think about 350 pounds, and the chemical markings on the side. Cohen, now even more frustrated, pried open the barrel to see what was in it anyway. When he did, he was overcome by a horrific stench that made his knees buckle and his stomach turn. Floating on top of a greenish-brown viscous sludge, filling the drum, was a woman's 1960s-style high-heeled shoe. Next to that, a human hand. Cohen immediately called 911, and the drum was promptly turned over to forensic investigators at the Nassau County Morgue. Upon further examination, they discovered it held the mummified remains of a petite, approximately five-foot-tall, dark-haired woman of either Caucasian or Hispanic descent. She appeared to be between the ages of 25 and 30, and her clothing, including a faux leopard-skin jacket, also appeared to be made in the 1960s, which sounds actually very fabulous, that jacket. She had been stuffed cross-legged into the drum, and the cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. Examiners found 10 different lacerations to the back and upper part of her head, as well as multiple fractures to her skull. There was blood staining in these areas, which indicated she'd endured these horrific injuries while she was still alive. Also in the drum were roughly 250 pounds of polystyrene, or plastic, little pellets, a pocketbook with a makeup kit, an address book, a wallet with a business card for by then long-since-retired physician in Hoboken, New Jersey, a plastic flower stem with leaves, and of course, the sludge-like fluid. Recovered from the body were three pieces of jewelry, two rings, one inscribed M-H-R, and a locket inscribed to Patrice, love Uncle Phil. The woman had very unusual dental work. Her front teeth were rimmed with gold. This type of dentistry was not standard in the United States, but rather South America. When doctors x-rayed the body, they were surprised to discover a 17-inch fetus of a baby boy near full term. She had been nine months pregnant. Who was this woman, and why had she met such a horrible fate in this Long Island crawl space? The barrel itself yielded the first clues to investigators. They noticed several coded serial numbers on the drum, which was determined to have been manufactured in 1965 by Ream Container in Linden, New Jersey. Furthermore, it had been shipped to the General Aniline and Film Company dye plant in the same city for use to transport a halogen green dye. This explained the greenish sludge surrounding the body. This dye had been discontinued by General Aniline's Colway Pigments Division in 1971. It was sold to a defunct synthetic floral and greenery manufacturer based in Manhattan called Melrose Plastics. Now, detectives sought out the previous owners of the Jericho home. Arthur and Judith Eben, who had sold the home to Ronald Cohen, said, The barrel had weighed a ton. 
We did roll it into the corner, forgot about it, and it was out of sight, out of mind for 12 years. They didn't investigate it further due to the chemical markings on the side. The owner before this family, from 1957 to 1972, was discovered to be Howard B. Elkins. He had lived in the home, which was newly constructed at the time, with his wife Ruth and three children. He was now retired and living in Boca Raton, Florida, moving there in 1972 after having sold his business in Manhattan. And what was the business? None other than Melrose Plastics. Several tips came in about the source of the barrel, what their original contents were used for, and that Elkins had been having an affair with a much younger Latina whom he employed in his plastics factory. As NASA detectives were set to fly to Boca Raton to interview Elkins, there came a big break in the case. The department's documents unit had managed to dry out the victim's address book after placing it in a forensic drying cabinet for several days to draw out the moisture. The papers were initially illegible due to the liquid coating it, making the paper pulpy and extremely delicate. After drying, using a video spectral comparator, which combines advanced digital engineering with a full range of infrared light sources to visualize writing not discernible to the naked eye, they were able to see a permanent residence card written on the first page, and this belonged to Reina Angelica Marroquin, a 28-year-old immigrant from El Salvador. But cops didn't have much else to go on other than a name and a photo from her immigration papers. The 30-year-old phone numbers in the address book police dialed were mostly all disconnected. Luckily, a phone number in the book belonged to Kathy Andrade, who after 30 years still lived in the same apartment and had the same telephone number. When police contacted her, she told them that Reina had been a friend of hers, having met her in English class. She told them how Reina, an attractive, stylish, sweet-tempered girl with a passion for clothes, had left her homeland in the hopes of breaking into New York's fashion industry. Instead, she'd gotten a job hand-painting artificial flowers at a West 34th Street company named Melrose Plastics. Still, Reina loved New York and dreamed of one day becoming an American citizen. Kathy then dropped another bombshell. She said, I noticed a change in her, and I said, do you have a problem? Then she started to cry. She said, yes, I have a problem. I am pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. And I was in shock. That year, in 1969, Raina confided that she'd been dating an older married man, and her lover had gotten her pregnant. Kathy couldn't remember his name, but Raina said it was her boss. Raina already had a small child whom she sometimes brought to the factory with her. It was never revealed who the father was, but coworkers at Melrose Plastics suspected Elkins. And for some reason, I could not find any information about this toddler. I have no idea what the gender was, if this child ended up staying alive, absolutely nothing. I have no information that I could find. And oddly, the Forensic Files documentary never even mentioned that she already had a child. Anyway, Kathy did say that this boyfriend eventually moved Raina into a Hoboken apartment and promised to leave his wife. Now, as you recall, one of the things found in the barrel was the business card for the Hoboken doctor. And I wonder if that person was recommended to her for her pregnancy. According to Kathy, time passed and nothing happened. And this is when she lost her head. 
She lost her head and she called the house and told his wife. The next night, a frantic Reina called her again, claiming the boyfriend was so angry that he threatened to kill her. Kathy rushed to Reina's apartment and found the door ajar, an unfinished meal on the table, and no sign of her friend. She never saw Reina again. When she went to police, she asked if she when she went to police, they asked if she was a relative and assured her that Reina had probably taken off with her boyfriend and to come back in a week. Now, I don't know about this attitude if it had something to do with Reina being an immigrant. I don't know if it was just the sign of the times. My guess is that it could have been both. Reina had never disclosed the name of her boyfriend, but I do wonder with Kathy if she knew it was her boss, I mean, surely she knew where Reina was working, right? Perhaps she just didn't want to get involved in a sticky situation. I'm not really sure. Again, I mean, she obviously was trying to do the right thing by going to the police in the first place, but perhaps she felt it was sort of futile and maybe they were right. Maybe Reina had just taken off out of fear of reprisal from her boyfriend. Nassau homicide detectives Robert Edwards and Brian Porpin, armed with this new information, paid a visit to Elkins at his home in Boca Raton on September 9, 1999. Elkins was uncooperative during the interview. Now 71, he calmly claimed he didn't know anything about the drum or the halogen green dye. He did admit to having an affair back in New York, but claimed he couldn't remember anything about Raina. He couldn't remember her name or any physical characteristics. He came off as glib, very comfortable with himself, and he wouldn't readily answer any questions. He would just stare at the detectives. When asked to give a DNA sample, Elkins adamantly refused. His wife Ruth then called, and he asked detectives to leave. Before they did, Detective Porpin responded, Tomorrow, we're coming back with a warrant for your DNA, and we're going to prove that you were the father of that baby, and you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. The next day, Elkin's son found his father's body in the backseat of a Ford Explorer in a friend's garage with a gunshot wound to his head and a 12-gauge Mossberg 500 pump-action shotgun he had purchased at a Walmart store that day found between his legs. Now, why he went to his neighbor's garage, I don't know. I don't know if he was trying to protect his family from seeing that, but what a strange thing. Can you imagine that you wake up in the morning and you're going to run some errands and you see your neighbor has committed suicide in your backseat? I mean, I don't know what I don't know what he was thinking. Detective Edwards said they didn't believe Ruth Elkins ever knew about what had happened. After his suicide, Elkins's Florida neighbor, Robert Fromont, told the New York Post that Howard was very active in the community, very much in the social scene. Another neighbor in Boca Raton, Frank Lanano, told the New York Times that he seemed like a very sociable fellow. It seems that those who knew him in Florida appeared genuinely shocked as the story unfolded. Arthur Eben, who purchased the home in Jericho, New York, from Elkins, said, Howard was a very tall, good-looking, distinguished businessman. They seemed like such a lovely family. Investigators did obtain Elkins' DNA, and though the DNA in the fetus had degraded substantially after 30 years, it proved to be a 99.93% match to Elkins. He was the father of Raina's unborn baby boy. Cops surmised that Elkins, livid that Raina had confessed the affair to his wife, drove the frightened woman to his factory where he smashed her head open and stuffed her body in the drum. 
Elkins, who owned a sailboat, then brought it to his Long Island home and filled it with plastic pellets to weigh it down so he could dump it in the ocean. Cops figured that the drum was now too heavy to move on its own, so he left it in the crawl space, hoping that no one would open the lid someday and reveal its ghastly secret. Detective Edwards later commented, I don't think he knew what to do with her. I think he had a plan that he was going to package her up and perhaps get rid of her, but once the package was complete, it was just too heavy for one person to move, and I think at that time, he was stuck. Can you guys imagine... Can you imagine living at a home with your spouse and your three children and you've got your murdered lover and unborn child sitting in your crawl space? How does anyone, how can anyone separate that? I mean, it's just mind boggling to think about. I don't know if he's got a personality disorder. I don't know what that is, but it's just to be able to still stay in that home for, I believe it was what? three more years with your family acting like nothing has happened? I can't even imagine. Oscar Corral, who was the lead reporter on the story for Newsday, tracked down Reina's family in San Martin, El Salvador to break the news to them. Her mother, 95 years old at the time, said she had never known the fate of her daughter after she left the country to start a life in America in 1966, but that she would dream about her often, sometimes that she was in a barrel. Raina's sister, Dora, said, she'd tell my mom, I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to be somebody someday. For three years, Raina had written her family regularly. In one of her letters, she wrote, I'm sorry that I don't write often, but I always think of you. Then, suddenly, the letter stopped. Dora said, we put announcements in the paper in El Salvador, young Salvadorian woman missing in New York. Mrs. Marroquin, Reina's mother, who was called Grandma, said, Now I know she's with me. She came flying like a dove back to her home. Reina's body was eventually returned to El Salvador and given a dignified funeral service. Her mother died a month after she found out the fate of her daughter, and they were buried together. Kathy Andrade said, I feel happy that she finally rests in peace in El Salvador where she belongs. Her sister Dora Marroquin said, my sister is still alive with us. We will never forget her. Detective Robert Edwards retired in 2001 after 36 years with the Nassau County Police Department. In reflecting on Reyna's case, he told Oscar Corral, I think there's potentially a killer in everybody. A murder is an assault that went too far. People become enraged about things. A crime of passion or self-defense is an animal instinct. But, he added, I think there is more good than evil in the world. The story made national headlines, and Forensic Files made a documentary on the case, as I've mentioned, where Corral appears in an interview. It was also featured on 48 Hours and became the backdrop for an episode of Law & Order. Corral later wrote a fiction novel called Keep Her Contained, which is loosely based on this case. Somewhat ominously, investigators found a simple but haunting sentence Raina had written in her address book. Don't be mad, I told the truth. And that is the case of Raina Marikeen. It's incredibly sad what happened. Obviously, according to Kathy, Raina came to truly regret the fact that she had told Howard's wife, but it sounds like he was completely stringing her along. Regardless, there's absolutely no justification for murder, and I don't know how somebody can do that to a woman that is nine months pregnant. I'm still really interested to find out more about Raina's other child. 
but I'll continue to look up this case from time to time and see if I can find any information. I just, I think it's very bizarre that there's not anything out there. Okay, friends, and now for something beautiful. This week, I've decided to pick Drybar's Liquid Glass Miracle Smoothing Sealant. That is a tongue twister. Um, It was given to me by a friend that works in the uh, beauty business and specializes in hair, and it's fabulous. Basically, what you do is you use it on your damp hair without any other pre-styling products, and then you can blow dry it. And it basically leaves your hair with a super glossy, silky finish without weighing it down. It lasts through three washes and even works as a heat protectant up to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't like putting too much product in my hair because it will weigh it down and volume is always an issue that I that I have. So, so basically, it's heat-activated, smooth-shot, complex technology. And this wraps an invisible shield around each hair strand to provide frizz resistance. So... It also has vegan keratin, which is a highly moisturizing protein. Another ingredient is burdock root, which helps prevent fizz. And it's great for all hair types, plus there are no parabens, sulfates, or phthalates. It's cruelty-free, it smells amazing, with notes of coconut, amber, and vanilla. It makes your hair look amazing after you blow dry it, and it's awesome for straightening your hair using a flat iron, but also really any other kind of product as well. But Um, I definitely think, especially in the winter, if you're dealing with dryness, like this could be extremely helpful too. So you can find it, of course, on their website or wherever retailers sell dry bar, but highly, highly recommend this product. I use it almost any time I blow dry my hair. everyone thank you so much for tuning in to episode 18 of crime and beauty i hope you really enjoyed it i'm looking forward to a year of many more cases if you've got suggestions as always please email me at crime and beauty podcast at gmail.com you can listen on spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, amazon music audible i'm probably forgetting some I've also developed a YouTube channel for Crime and Beauty Podcast, so I've uploaded every single episode and will continue to do so if that is your preferred method as well. Um, You can find us on crimeandbeauty.podbean.com, on Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast, Facebook at Crime and Beauty Podcast, and as always, thanks for listening and stay beautiful.